We are in the book of Esther. Uh, this is uh, part six of our journey through the book of Esther right now. And uh, I'm going to drop us right into it. And then I'll, uh, I'll add some, uh, some catch-up information later. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It is a pivotal point in the story. Pivotal point in the story. Because you know what happened last week in chapter 5. Haman recounts all the great things he has going on for him. A lot of great things. And yet he's still not content. Still not happy. He says, in fact, none of it actually matters at all so long as... Mordecai is still alive. And his wife says, well, if that's the case, build a gallows, hang him tomorrow. Tell the king you want to kill him. If that's the only thing preventing you from really being happy and, and, and joyous and glad of heart, just kill him then. And so, that's his plan. And yet that very night, the king can't sleep. It's no accident that of all these nights, he can't sleep this night. Can't sleep this night. And so he calls for the book of the Chronicles. This is not the same book as First and Second Chronicles. Uh, rather, uh, this would be rather a, a diary, a record of sorts of the king's reign, of all the great and glorious things that he's done that he wants to remember. Uh, it'd be like, you know, you see on social media, on Facebook, when it pops up, your Facebook memories, this time a year ago, or five years ago, right? And so he, he wants one of his attendants to come and to read it to him. But it is a pivotal point in the story, because up until this point, as the reader, you're aware, you've been aware for the last six weeks of the injustice that's about to be done. Mordecai's aware. Esther's aware. Haman obviously is aware. It's his plan to go and see the annihilation of the Jewish people. And so, verse 2, it says, And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Back in chapter 2, Mordecai overheard a conversation between these two guys. He reports it to Esther. She escalates it on up to King Ahasuerus. He discovers the plot, checks it out, turns out to be true, and Mordecai ends up saving Ahasuerus' life. And of all the stories that the king reads the night before that Haman's coming to him with the proposition to have Mordecai killed, it's that story. If you've been with us before, then you know that Esther is an interesting book for the sole reason that God is not mentioned at all in this story. And yet, God is very much on the move in this story. He's not mentioned, but he is very much on the move, involved, acting on behalf of his people. No accident that Ahasuerus can't, can't sleep. And the interesting thing is that Xerxes, he probably has no idea 
and I use his Greek name as a reminder because that's usually what he goes, he's better known by, especially in 2019, the story of the 300 Spartans and their Greek allies when they held off the million-man Persian army at Thermopylae, the Persians, Xerxes, same guy here. That's his Greek name. Ahasuerus um, would be his Persian name. Can't sleep of all nights. Has this book brought to him. I know all the stories. It's the one about Mordecai. God is at work behind the scenes in this story. And the crazy thing is, is the king, who knows whether he actually even knows or not. Probably he doesn't know. He just thinks, like, maybe I had something weird to eat. I can't sleep tonight. Whatever, right? We know it is no accident that this is happening. Regardless of whether or not he is aware. And it's not the first time we've seen in the history of the Bible where God has acted and the king's unaware. Whether it's in the life of Pharaoh, whether it's in the life of Cyrus, one of his predecessors. In fact, one of our Wednesday night small group Bible verses is from Isaiah 45, 5-7. We'll throw it up on the screen to illustrate what I, what I want to come across right now. In Isaiah 45, 5-7 it says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. But notice back in verse 5 what he says. Isaiah, writing to his people and yet here specifically singling out Cyrus He says, I equip you, though you do not know me. And he can do that. Cyrus, I'm equipping you. You have no idea what's happening. I know what's happening. I'm equipping you because I have a purpose here. And he can do that for a Cyrus or a Pharaoh or a Trump or Obama or a Hashuerus, Xerxes. He can do that. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he is at work for the benefit of his people, to help them. And I hope that encourages you for the sole reason that perhaps you find yourselves where you, like the people in this story, are being treated very unfairly, harshly, cruel, justly. Seems like God isn't anywhere to show up, to answer your prayer. He's showing up right now. And the king seems unaware that anything at all is happening. But we know that something's happening. One of my favorite Piper quotes is, at any given moment in your life, any given moment, God's doing like a thousand different things and you're aware of, I don't know, like one of them or two, It should encourage you, right? It is not an accident that of all these nights, it's this night that the king can't sleep, that this night he asks one of his attendants, hey, bring the book of the Chronicles. Hey, open up and read this story. And of all the stories, the one that Mordecai had saved his life. No, God is on the move for the benefit of his people to deliver them, even if it happens to be in the 11th hour. No, he's at work. Be encouraged, Christian. Any given moment in your life, he's doing like a thousand things, and you're aware of like one of them or two of them. Man. So we see this. 
The king, probably not. We do. Verse 3, and the king said, Hey, do we, do we do anything for Mordecai? Right? And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Well, nothing's been done for him. And the king said in verse 4, Who's in the court, right? Anybody on duty? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Well, Haman's there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. You think this is just an accident? No. Despite the fact that God is not mentioned in the story, you see the undeniable hand of God providentially coming to deliver and save His people. And uh, that should encourage you. When you're going through hard things, when you're being treated unfairly or justly. And so Haman comes in, and the king said in verse 6, Haman, I need some input. Give me uh, some advice. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Hmm, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Right? I I love how we get to see what he's thinking here, right? Well, since you asked, right? uh, This is Haman, right? If you asked Haman, Haman, how do you spell the word hero? He'd probably say H-A-M-A-N. Works for me, right? I mean, uh, to quote the, the great philosopher Lady Gaga, he lives for the applause. That is this guy. That, that's him, right? He loves being noticed. For Haman, there is no such thing as being an unsung hero whatsoever. And that's why, to a certain degree, we've gotten to this point. Because Mordecai, in the previous story, won't bow down to him, won't recognize who he is. Because uh, he's the man, right? He's the cat's meow. Haman. Are you like that? Are you like that? Or are you content to serve and work regardless of whether anyone ever recognizes you or notices what you're doing? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city proclaiming before them, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Uh, Little does Haman realize he's going to be the most noble official in verse 9 that gets to uh, lead this procession. So here's the advice he gives to him. 
And then in verse 10 it says, Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I've never seen Proverbs 16, 18 illustrated so pointedly as right here. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. I mean, he just falls flat on his face right here. Shocked. He shows up, no doubt, Bright and early, king can't sleep all night long. He's thinking, I'm going to be there first thing in the morning, that first order of business. I can say, listen, let's hang this guy. And his whole world is just radically changed in a moment. His pride is going to trip him up pretty bad here. And so... Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Principal theme, God takes care of his people. God saves his people. God rescues his people. God delivers his people. And furthermore, when he gets home and he tells his wife and his friends and family about the situation, they flat out tell him, listen, this isn't a matter of that you might stand. You cannot stand. It's not, it's not an issue, well, maybe things will work out this way. No, like, they're very clear. You will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. And so the story ends. And two major issues surface before us. On one side of things, we see throughout the story. It's just so punctuated how God acts and delivers his people. God is on the move. Despite the fact God's not mentioned in this story, he's on the move to save his people. In the life of the king, he is acting, right? No accident that Ahasuerus can't sleep that night. And though he is no doubt unaware of what's happening. And on the other side, we see the pride of Haman, which will be his undoing. And so I'm, I'm curious, a little curious, how many of you, I know I'm putting you on the spot, how many of you struggle with pride? Cool. For those of you listening online, there's about 50% of the people in the room raised their hands. Um, 
a little bit of a trick question? I set you up for it. Because everyone deals with pride. The thing is, is very few of us actually even realize it. Every single one of us struggle with pride, yet very few of us actually are even aware that we do because it takes on such subtle forms. And so when we come across a story like this, we're like, yeah, that Haman guy, man, he is, uh, right? But I'm not like him. I'm not trying to exterminate an entire people group. Yeah, I mean, so that part doesn't have a lot of application for my life. The other part's really encouraging, God acting, working to deliver and save his people. That's, that's, that, one, that was for me, Joe, today. Thank you. But not the other part. So, you know, I find it interesting when I, uh, I talk to people, uh, especially college students. I know a lot of you guys are college students. Uh, so many people, when I say, anything I can be praying for you for, and they always say, well, I need prayer for time management, or I need prayer because I'm procrastination. And so... Um, I'm listening to an APJ episode the other day. Ask Pastor John. Uh, he's not on there. Trip Lee is on there. Uh, he's a Christian artist. I was like, oh, Trip Lee, all right, what does he have to say? And the topic of pride comes up. And he says, unapologetically, procrastination is pride. Never heard that before. Never thought about that before. Keep going, Trip. Trip proceeds. He says, procrastination is pride because it assumes you know the future. What you don't. You don't know when your health is going to decline. And it is going to decline. Sometimes you feel like you're in your 20s. You feel like you're invincible. There will come a time in which your health will decline. It may be tonight. I'm going to drive home. I don't know. Or when your life ends, like Haman. Or when your life was going to get busier. And so we say, oh, I'll just do it later, right? But you assume that you'll have it later. You have no idea whether or not you will or not. It's prideful. In fact, James, Jesus' little brother, tells us as much. Don't say, I'm going to go here or here today, tomorrow. Say, if God wills it, then I'll do it. Then I'll go there. Then I'll do X, Y, and Z if God wills it. For example, I know we've got the holidays coming up. Many of you will be traveling. Thanksgiving, Christmas. And some of you will have opportunities to speak to unsaved friends and family. And the temptation, no doubt, that you will face is, do I tell them things that I know I need to tell them, or do I put it off? Do I share with them maybe some of the very things you've been learning in our journey through the book of Esther, or what God has been doing in my life, or flat out, listen, here's the gospel. I've shared it with him 18 times, but man, I'm throwing the ball in the end zone a 19th time to see if maybe the Holy Spirit's moving in their life, and then in that moment, you're like, you know what? I'll just talk to him Christmas break, or I'll just do it next time. And yet, the fact is, is God has given you like the right here and the right now, or maybe as Mordecai, when he tells Esther, for such a time as this. 
previous two chapters ago? Esther, you need to go, you need to talk to the king and speak to him on our behalf, on the behalf of the people, ask for his favor. And she's like, ah, I don't know. Because I'm not even sure if I have his favor any longer. Esther. Esther, for all you know, the whole reason that you are queen of Persia is for such a time as this. God has given you the right here and the right now. Think about that when you're away for Thanksgiving. Think about that when you're away for Christmas. Think about that tomorrow at work, at your job, to feel the urgency that people are dying and going to hell. And for all you know, God has put you in this position to have a conversation with this person for, I don't know, such a time as this. Don't put it off, right? Because you don't know if later's ever going to come. So, interesting application Tripoli brought up, the fact that procrastination is pride. Because it assumes that you know the future. Bottom line, guys, like everybody struggles with pride, yet very few of us actually know it because it takes on such subtle forms in our lives. I say, okay, Joe, so what do I do? Other than repent? I know what you meant. You meant practically. What am I to do? Uh, I got some help from Mr. Piper on this matter, but one of the ways that we can fight this is by taking a close and constant look at how God saves His people. You battle pride? You're in the trenches? How do you fight? You take a close and constant look. A close, right? It's close and it's constant of the stories in the Bible where God saves His people. Think of the story of Esther, right here in the 11th hour. Haman's on his way to the palace to speak to the king. King can't sleep, has his attendant come. Yeah, read me a story. Which one? From the Chronicles, okay? Story of Mordecai. And then the king feels in such a way that he needs to act upon this to reward him. And hey, what officials at court right now? Oh, Haman, cool, bring him in, right? No accident there, guys. How do you fight pride? You take a constant and close look at how God saves His people in this story, or perhaps the culmination of His saving work for His people at the cross. You know, the the cross was designed to humble you. The cross was designed to humble you and to destroy your pride. It is. It was. And the crazy thing is, is that millions of Christians don't know how God saved them. Listen to Piper's. Millions of Christians don't know how God saved them. I'm like, really? You can be saved and not know how. You you can know like Jesus died on the cross for my sins and not know like the how, like how did this happen? That I stand before God tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow is the day that I, I meet my Savior face to face. And he says, Joe, what is the ultimate reason that you are here before me, standing here? What is the ultimate reason? 
I could, maybe even tempted to say in a Haman-like way, well, <clears throat> here's the thing, God, right? I, uh, I have a master's of divinity, first of all. Uh, um, God, I had some of the greatest people discipling me. Lord, I preached so many sermons, expository, verse by verse. Uh, have you even, I mean, have you checked out my Ruth series? It's got a lot of likes. And, you know, and he says, no, Joe, what's the ultimate reason that you're here, that you're before me? Well, I prayed a prayer. I asked you into my heart like 5,800 times, but, you know, whatever, right? I, I raised my hand. I walked the aisle. Or do I say, the ultimate reason for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. You want to fight pride? You need to take a close and constant look at how God saves his people. How does he save his people? And the, the interesting thing, because you've heard Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 before, right? You know that. That's a go-to memory verse. Have you heard Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3? Because before he gets to 8 and 9, he makes his case abundantly clear. When you think of grace, I want you to think of someone who's dead. I know that's kind of morbid. Think of someone that's dead. See, look at Ephesians chapter 2. We have it on the screen, I think. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before he ever gets to, for by grace you have been saved, he wants to really drive this idea of grace home. An idea of grace that, honestly, despite the fact I grew up in the church, it never really was driven home. It was really a token term that we threw around. So Paul is here and he's thinking, I want to talk about grace. I need a really powerful illustration to, to drive this point home. That's it. I'll think of a dead body. So here's the issue. How does a dead body become alive? Maybe they can... Give themselves CPR? No, they're dead. They can't do that. Maybe they could call out for help? No, they're, they're dead. They, they, can't, they can't do that, right? That's the whole point, right? The problem with the dead, someone who's dead is that they are dead, right? So there is an inability that they have to make themselves alive. If they could make themselves alive, they wouldn't be dead in the first place. Don't know if you ever thought about grace in terms of a dead body. But that is the imagery that Paul wants you to see so that the weight of the word grace is that much more powerful for you. Right? You were physically alive but spiritually dead. That is the condition of every unbeliever in the world. That was your former condition. So when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, he really means it's not your own doing. It wasn't like a group project, collective effort. Hey, high five, God. We, uh, we knocked this out together, right? When you think of grace, Paul would say, think of a dead body, a dead person, 
physically alive, spiritually dead. They cannot do anything. You want to fight pride, Christian? You need to take a close look at how God saves his people in the story here and culminating at the cross. Or as Mr. Jonathan Edwards says, you know, you know Jonathan Edwards, right? Preached during the Great Awakening. You contribute nothing to your own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. If you did do anything, if you had any part in some type of joint operation to save yourself, it was only in providing the sin necessary that required salvation at the very beginning. You did nothing. And that's good, right? Because the cross and all these stories here in Esther were designed to humble you, to kill that pride, that Haman-like pride that rears its head. You think of what he says to, to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. I love 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. You want a good verse that helps you kill pride? 2 Timothy 1, 9. It says this, It is the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. Kind of sounds like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, right? Not because of works, right? God God saved us. He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, right? But because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Say, what? Which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God gave to Timothy, as God gave to all Christians, saving grace before the ages begin. There's no world, and He gave you saving grace. There's no sin, yet He gave you saving grace. And when we think of grace, how do we think? We think of a dead body. Physically alive, spiritually dead, unable to do anything for themselves. Oh, Christian, you want to fight pride? You want to put pride to death? Pride that you're not even maybe even aware of because it takes such subtle forms in your life and your tendency to be like, oh, I'm not like that guy. I'm not like Haman. Maybe that guy sitting next to me is, I'm not like him. Then you need to take a close and constant look at the Bible and how God saves his people. How God saved you. You contribute absolutely nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I grew up in the church and no one ever talked to me this way about grace. But when I think of grace, I need to think of someone who's dead because that's the picture and illustration that Paul builds on in chapter 2, 1 to 3 of Ephesians to get to 8 and 9. And when I started seeing this, right, that when I stand before God on that day and he says, Joe, what's the, what's the ultimate reason you're here? It's your grace that, like Timothy, you gave me before the ages began. There's something about taking that close and constant look that just breaks every degree of pride 
to such a point that you have this humble posture. I can't help but just like be on my knees when I think about like this, like how small I am and how big and glorious and great that he is. And he is. And I'm thankful for it. I am. Oh, Christian, when you think of grace, you think of a dead body totally unable to do anything for themselves because they're dead. And then you begin to capture, I think, more of the meaning of it. And in doing so, it will help you to kill pride in your life. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We thank you, God, for the story of Esther. We thank you, Lord, to know that despite the fact you're not even mentioned in this story, that you are on the move in this story to save and rescue and deliver your people in this story. To be reminded that even though the king probably has no idea what's happening, why he can't sleep, to know that just like that, like in our lives, at any given moment, you're doing like a thousand different things and we may not even be aware of any of them. Thank you for being the God of grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from pride. Whether it takes contextually, Lord, a a similar demeanor that it did in the life of Haman, or whether it's procrastination and we assume that we know, you know, that there's going to be a tomorrow, or whatever it may be, God, I pray that we would put to death such things, Lord, that we would kill our sin and that we would have a bigger view of you, Lord, and what it means to be truly saved by grace alone. Help us, Jesus. Lord, help us to redeem the time that we have and to live our lives in such a way that we want to take this message of grace and love and forgiveness to a lost and dying world. To embrace the moment that you have given us here and now and next week for Thanksgiving or next month for Christmas for such a time as this you may have placed us here, whether it's in this city or at home. And I pray, Lord, that we would not put off such moments. In your name we pray, amen.